Football Clichés is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Break up the music. Charge your glass. This nation is going to dance all night. The average footballer's body is an anatomical marvel. If their head's not been turned, they're showing an eye for a pass or sniffing out a chance. To take a game by the scruff of their neck, with a manager's arm around their shoulder, trying to shake the monkey off their back, hoping a goal will go in off their backside, or their educated left foot. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. With me to talk about heads and indeed shoulders, knees and toes, uh, Michael Cox, uh, you're the epitome of an old head on young shoulders. Um, how are you? <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you, Adam. Uh, also with me is uh, Dave Walker, the managing editor of Audio, who continues to give this podcast a selection headache. You're back again. Uh, it's, a, it's a good problem to have, though, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, no, no critical acclaim for you this week. So, okay, um, I better step it up. Yeah, your star's falling. Um, before we go on to talk about um, the anatomy of a footballer, we're going to do our traditional things we noticed about football this week, which is a surprisingly fruitful section, despite there being no football. Um, few people are presumably wondering what actual football commentators are up to at the moment, since there's nothing to do. Uh, Clive Tilsley has answered this by commentating on his wife making lasagna. Very important at this difficult time to uh, stay in the rhythm of uh, commentary. So welcome to uh, our kitchen and live coverage of our supper preparation. Kitchen looking good. Here's the oil. Nice. Here's basil. Now pepper. Salt. Oh, garlic. Tomato puree. Stop now. The vegetables. Oh, wait a minute. No, well, we've got to check. I'm hearing possible stockpiling. Uh, how many onions are there in there? No, we need them all. You sure? Definitely. The check complete. Carry on. Oh, what a waste. What a waste. <laughs> Surprisingly natural delivery, wasn't it? I mean, um, does making a lasagna translate well to football commentary? I think he's done a decent job there, isn't he? It, it throws up a number of questions uh, to me. Uh, there has, has actually been a follow-up video to that as well, where he commentates on uh, taking the hair out of his shower uh, plug system. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the difficult <laughs> second album of, of the yeah. scenario here, wasn't it? Yeah, God knows what's coming next. But um, well, firstly, <laughs> I, I wonder whether we'll ever get to see the commentary notes for the lasagna. Surely there's a very detailed, very nicely written recipe for his lasagna somewhere. That's right, yeah. In lovely um, handwriting. What what on earth would that sound like if you were like in the living room and like mum and dad are in the kitchen making dinner? Like <laughs> just imagine the the sounds of the howls of uh, of Tilsley commentating on the cooking. And thirdly, when are we going to see um, the the off tube episode of this particular strand when Clive gets Clive gets properly self isolated if he God forbid ever catches coronavirus and has to commentate on his wife via a laptop <laughs> making the la lasagna downstairs I, I think we can all hope that it doesn't get that far um, uh, Michael I presume you were hugely amused by that weren't you yeah I mean it was kind of what you expect commentators to be doing I mean you just wonder whether 
he does that all the time. I suspect that it's a kind of regular <laughs> yeah. thing. And it's only because of the coronavirus that he's, you know, sought to, uh, yeah, get the numbers via YouTube. But I imagine he just does that in his everyday life, right? Yeah, I suspect so. Um, I didn't really like, I didn't think that tomato puree would be quite the crescendo of the situation. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just nice that he's keeping busy. And Clive, if you're listening, as I know you are, um, hello from all of us. Um, secondly, um, this is a very odd story, simply because of the way the trajectory of this has gone. Um, Ronaldinho has found himself playing football in jail in Paraguay. Um, this feels like the plot's a really, really shit film. And the, the curious thing about this story is that there is simply no focus on what on the offence that he is supposed to have committed. It's just the fact he is now in prison playing football. What is going on? Yeah, I mean, it's a strange story. I mean, I gather that he he tried to get into Paraguay with a fake passport, am I right in saying? Um, But I did read uh, a tweet by Fernando Duarte, who is a Mm. uh, very uh, well-known Brazilian journalist, who suggested that Brazilians don't need a passport to get into Paraguay. Um, I haven't followed up on whether that's true, but if so, it it seems to be a a schoolboy error, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't know the exact... um, details in terms of which part of the passport was fake or whatever but i mean you're one of the most recognizable people on the planet like surely that's just not gonna go well at all i don't know if he i, I don't know if he, he cut surely he can't have like put a fake name on there like it must have been some other sort of administrative error or, or detail that he's that he's that they've tried to forge but that that is mad i, I couldn't believe it at first i thought I thought it was like a fake news story, but I mean, we now have actually seen the footage of him playing football in the in yeah. the on the concrete pitch. His team, his team won eleven two on his debut. Um, I think he scored five and set up six. Um, <laughs> nice. The old, the old uh, Vivian turning provider. Okay, uh, there was a casual no look back heeled assist. I just, I just find this whole scenario of what is happening. Um, I feel like this this story couldn't have ever happened at any other point. Um, in the news cycle, um, the trophy on offer was a 16 kilogram roast pig. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I, just, I mean, there is, surely, there... surely somebody's got to take him out like that. There's got to be a real hard as nails Paraguayan convict who's just going to his only aim in this game is to just do Ronaldinho. Yeah, I can't imagine they're all, you know, hugely accommodating this. But I mean, we had Kakar turning up in, in a five-a-side game in London recently. Now Ronaldinho. What is going on with uh, Brazilian Ballon d'Or winners from the from the from the early 2000s? Um have they just got nothing better to do with their lives? Well, am I right in saying that Ronaldo, as in the original Ronaldo, didn't he come to London for a year and studied like marketing or something like that? Yeah. Further education. <laughs> no course. recollection of this. Yeah, he, he did. That's that's right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe like four or five years ago, honestly. During this downtime, some serious journalism and research has gone on. Someone has um, ascertained which Premier League club is closest to a branch of Greg's. <laughs> Uh, and we and can all answer this. We can all answer this without even looking, right? We all we uh, know, surely. Okay, well, okay. Let's have your guesses for the current league leaders for being closest to a branch of Greg's. Well, it has to be Newcastle. It is. They are. Uh, they they are one hundred eleven point nine two meters from their nearest Greg. <laughs> uh, so who's bottom then in that case? Oh, Ooh. that's a good question. Someone with an out of town ground. Um... Bournemouth? Close. It's Brighton and Hove Albion who uh, are nearly five kilometres from their nearest branch of Greggs. You just don't get Greggs in Brighton, do you? Um, no. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work. There, yeah, there's definitely a kind of northern bias to this league table. The Champions League places are occupied by Everton, uh, Arsenal and Wolves. Um, so Arsenal are sort of flying the flag for southern Greggs. Um, but uh, Man City... Uh, apparently, uh, their closest Greg's is actually the corporate office of Greg's, which I don't <laughs> think should count. <laughs> no, it depends. It depends what kind of pastries you can get. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I suppose they would have in-house corporate pastries. So I guess it counts. This data, I believe, has come from a post on, on Reddit, if I'm correct, mm. yeah? Um, yeah. So I've, I've had a look, and I do like the first comment on the thread, which is from what appears to be a Liverpool fan, saying, honestly, I'm surprised that James's Park doesn't have a Greggs built into it, such as the density of Greggs in Newcastle, which is a very good point, actually. Uh, it, just, it just stuns me. that um, 
Aston Villa are hovering above the relegation places in this bizarre situation. They find themselves in a strange triangle of almost equidistant Greggs. Three within about uh, a kilometre and a half. So, yeah, if you're in, ever in going to an Aston Villa game and you're keen on a Greggs, you've got, you know, a selection headache of your own there. Um, it's, let's it's move also on. Worth, Adam, it's also worth pointing <laughs> out that uh, the Athletics uh, Aston Villa correspondent is indeed a Greg. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, we also have an Everton correspondent called Greg, and Everton share the same Gregs with Liverpool, apparently. Um, <laughs> so is that where bragging rights? Bragging rights must converge in that v- branch of Greg's. <laughs> yeah, the queue for the, derby. yeah, the queue for the vegan sausage roll on the Monday morning after the Merseyside derby. Oh, God, must split, divide family. <laughs> the anatomy of a footballer has, has fascinated me because, as with many areas of football, there's such a strange set of language um, kind of attached to it. Um, take eyes, for example. Um, you can have half an eye on an upcoming game or you could have one eye on a separate competition. You can have all eyes on a specific player, but you never have two eyes on something. Unless, of course, you're giving the goalkeeper the eyes. This is all very intricate and it's all very specific. And you should never get this wrong. But what does what does giving the goalkeeper the eyes entail, Michael? Well, I'd say it's. I mean, it's pretty much kind of shaping as if you're going to hit the ball one way and then and then going for the other corner. I would suggest. So I think a lot of the time it's as much about body shape as it is about specifically the eyes. Um, the classic example I would say would be. Uh, the second goal for Porto in the 2004 Champions League final scored by Deco. Um, <laughs> of really, course you've got an example. <laughs> I, I think it's Flavio Roma in goal for Monaco really just of course. goes the opposite way. That for me is the ultimate example of giving the eyes. And in fact, my uh, school football team at that time, we, this is a slightly tangential point, but we used to refer to a, a kind of player on the edge of the D waiting for a cutback as in the deco position, which later just became in deco. And it was basically all because of that goal. Wow. That's quite a nice phrase. I like in deco. Just taking yeah. it stripping out all the other elements of that of that phrase and just saying in deco. Yeah, because nice. it was it, it kind of it started off as like I'll be in the deco. you know, it was kind of like I think we were working a free kick or something, like a mm. free kick routine. And uh yeah, obviously when you're on the pitch you just shout in deco and everyone knew what it meant. Um, similarly, um, the, the phrase taking a game by the scruff of the neck. Um, Dave, what do you think are some archetypal examples of taking a game by the scruff of the neck? Um, well, Steven Gerrard comes to mind, doesn't he? Immediately, mm. I think, when you think of this. You, it's it's a, it's a somebody playing in the middle of, you know, central midfield or in the, in the heart of the action, running around, shooting, passing, trying to do <laughs> everything themselves, probably trying to... Trying to st- turn the the game around trying to save the team from yeah. crashing out of a competition in a knockout game or something like that i feel like gerard had a kind of never-ending search for the for game neck scruffage um his infamous slip in 2014 after that he had eight shots from an average distance of 27 yards if that isn't the most desperate search for the for the scruff of a game's neck i don't know what is um coxie other examples beckham versus greece perhaps yeah, that's the one I was going to say. Um, and I, I think it was a similar kind of level of statistics in terms of his shots. That most of them were from free kicks. I think he scored with his sixth or seventh free kick attempt of the game. Um, another one I'd think of would be uh, Roy Keane away at Juventus in 1999, where he scored near post header and then really dragged his, his side through. But yeah, it feels like a particularly kind of British thing, you know, the, the kind of way we view midfielders is a bit Royal of the Rovers trying to do everything rather than, you know, being a... You you would never say it about someone like Xavi Hernandez, who I think is the best player I've ever seen at controlling yeah. a game because he was so, you know, uh, refined and reserved and played his role. But yeah, like you say, it's... Or like David says, it's really someone who's trying to do a bit of everything. Do you think it's a particularly British thing? I think so. I think there's an act of desperation to it. Like you say, Xavi and people like that. I mean, even I suppose the, the, the British example of that sort of player is Skullsworth, right? You know, they, they've, they've got it. They've, it's, it. They don't need to grab it by the scruff of the neck because they, they've just got it under control. Whereas you, to take the, the metaphor literally, grabbing it by the scruff of the neck, you're doing that because it's running away from you. So you're pulling it, desperately pulling it back towards you. 
as opposed to just having it in your pocket for the whole thing. Do you need to score to take a game by the scruff of the neck, or is it more of a kind of rabble rousing? No, I think you do. Situation. You, you do. Or or if or have a massive if, if not score like win a penalty or for you've got to force the issue anything that happens has to be a re- as a result of your action okay um there are there have been some sort of peripheral body parts that seem to have come into the lexicon in the last sort of six months or so mainly thanks to var uh, first of all armpits now armpits have already kind of moved into this kind of sarcastic territory i, I feel like not a weekend goes by without a kind of um uh, football commentators sort of bemoaning the fact that a, a striker has been an armpit offside or a toenail, and it's all getting a bit—it's all getting a bit too withering for me because because Coxie armpits are armpits are actually kind of a genuine kind of reference point when it comes to VAR, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I kind of understand the uh, descent towards it. I mean, they were basically trying to show where the line is drawn from in in the VAR. I think they could have used the word shoulder. I suppose there's an argument that the shoulder is a slightly more all-encompassing body part uh, than you would like to be specific. But yeah, it's it's basically as if you're, you know, where your arm meets your body. So armpit is a reasonable uh, explanation of that, I would say. How big is an armpit? And like, where are they going? Because like your armpit is sort of, still part of your arm isn't it and some part of your armpit would be deemed to be unplayable well there's talk of talk next season of clarifying the the handball um law um so that the uh, the ball can hit you anywhere above the t-shirt line am i right in thinking this yeah so that's a suggestion that they're gonna yeah slightly modify what is constituted as handball? Personally, I think that sounds absolutely disastrous. I mean, yeah. what about long sleeves? Well, exactly, yeah. And, and you've also got the issue of the uh, Cameroon shirts of the 2002 Africa. <laughs> where, uh... This is a definitive list of all the different types of pace in football. You can have searing pace, lightning pace, blistering pace, electric pace, explosive pace, which is pace to burn. You can have <laughs> bags of pace, which I presume is where pace can be injected from. Or you can have pace in abundance. You can also have real pace or genuine pace, but you can also have deceptive pace. Can <laughs> yeah. can we pick all this apart? Uh, I think the burning question there is: what is what is deceptive pace? What, what would you consider to be a player who has deceptive pace? One example that springs to mind is actually from I was listening to uh, to Michael's Zonal Marking podcast last week. They did an episode on Burnley with our Burnley writer Andy Jones, and he was describing. Chris Wood, as somebody with deceptive pace, you wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. If I told you what's give me Chris's Wood, Chris Wood's defining qualities, pace would be nowhere <laughs> near the top of the list, would it? Maybe it's someone who has kind of a languid running style, so the the. the it appears that they're not really um, putting a great deal of effort into running fast. I always remember when they when there were spurious news stories about um, uh, players' average speeds on a football pitch. Phil Jagielka was always top, and I never considered him to be a person who uh, who could run particularly fast. So maybe he was the most deceptive pace man of all. The most recent list of fastest players in the Premier League this season I can find is from December. So mm. it might have changed a bit since then, but... The, the according to this list, uh, the fastest player in the Premier League this season is Kagla Soyonchu of Leicester mm. <laughs> at 23.3 miles per hour top speed. <laughs> You're obliged at this point to compare it to whoever's got the current 100 metre world record, at which point a at which point kind of like a mid ranking Olympic athlete will step in on Twitter and say, actually, this is technically incorrect. There was an interesting stat. This must be about 15 years ago that um, had. Uh, it was a report on Arsenal's pre-season 40-metre or maybe 60-metre sprint tests. And the interesting revelation was that Dennis Burkamp was surprisingly high. I think he lost to only Thierry Henry, Jermaine Pennant and Sylvain Viltord, maybe. But he was apparently faster than the likes of uh, Ashley Cole and Robert Pires and Freddie Jungberg. You know, you just wouldn't really see Burkamp running at full pelt for 60 metres because it wasn't really his game. Is that because he had the first 30 metres in his head? <laughs> oh, yeah, almost <laughs> just certainly, cheating. yes. Almost <laughs> certainly, yeah. Um, uh, I feel like Teddy Sheringham was... was uh, 
kind of the archetype of having yards in his head. I don't think any player has been more celebrated for the yards that they had in their head. Or is it just half a yard? I can't remember. Often half a yard. But I think there's an interesting thing about pace where if it's someone like Teddy Sheringham, he obviously played into his late 30s and 40s. And people always used to say, well, he never depended upon his pace. So it hasn't really mattered that he's lost it. But then people sometimes apply the same thing to defenders. And I don't think it works at all. Because, I mean, someone (laughs) like Nemanja Vidic, for example, or Mm. more recent example is uh, Diego Godin, who's really struggled at Inter. If you go from being quite slow to really slow against a quick striker, it's a completely different ballgame. Because, you know, defending is a bit more reactive than the way that Teddy Sheringham plays. So I don't like that cliche, which I do like as a cliche, but I don't like it applied to defenders. Yeah, that's spot on, actually. Because if if you take that example for, like, football manager, if you're a centre-half with, with like, 10 out of 20 pace, you can get by with your positioning, if your positioning is 20. But if all of a sudden your pace goes down to 2 it doesn't matter how good your positioning is, you are in big trouble. What we need is is, is, is an official um, competition, especially in these downtimes, to ascertain just who is the fastest Premier League footballer. If only there was uh, just like the run below sprint challenge before the 1992 League Cup final, which was... Uh, and uh, this has passed into kind of semi-legend, this situation. It, it was it was, um, it was was commentated on by John McCreerick, who actually sort of presented the odds beforehand. And it was just before, it was at Wembley before the League Cup final. And they'd had regional heats for this as well. And uh, the fastest players in, in the Football League got together in full kit and their boots and ran 100 metres down the side of the pitch at Wembley before the 1992 League Cup final. Wow. Um, it was won by John Williams of Swansea City, uh, who was also, I think he his previous job was a postman. So then his nickname became The Flying Postman. And he won, ten, he won 10 grand. He won 10 grand, which at that point for a football league player was a not insignificant sum of money. The language of injuries is also quite interesting because I feel like there's a hierarchy in, in the way we cover injuries. Um, I feel like knock is the most um, minor of them. Then you move on to problem. It's like a thigh problem. And then you move on to complaint, like a knee complaint. And then, uh, so those, you might miss a match or two with those. But if, if it starts to become a bit more serious, then I think you you have what is known as an issue. Have I got this right? Is is my hierarchy of injuries correct? Yeah, knocks definitely at the bottom. You can mm. you can shake off a knock. You can run off a knock during a yeah. game if you get one. But it might develop into a problem. <laughs> Could develop into a problem. A complaint is a particular a kind. <laughs> I I think you more like a like a. It's like a non. It's like a medical, like a like a stomach complaint. So oh, you need okay. to go and see a doctor. See, so go and see the GP for. I think. Mm, mm. But are they with the word complaint? Is there not a slight insinuation that it's not that serious, and the player might be able to run it off if he doesn't like keep? Oh, you on mean they're just about whinging it. about it rather than yeah. actually stopping yeah. them doing anything? That's it's the kind point. of thing you know, like when uh, when Harry Kuehl was accused almost certainly wrongly, of going off easily in the 2005 Champions League uh, final. I can imagine people saying, oh, he went off with a thigh complaint rather mm. than a thigh injury. <laughs> it kind I just, of implies, I feel like, get on. I, 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 as with most episodes, uh, there's always a word that pops out that you would never say out loud, but you would write down in a news report. And I think complaint is probably one of those. Sorry, I, I was briefly distracted because um, someone has just walked past my the window of my house carrying a foosball table. <laughs> and I just, I just want to know what's going on. I just want to know the backstory behind that foosball table. Someone somewhere is really bored. Um, <laughs> uh, when footballers are injured, and, and, and I think when people who don't like football watch football, I think one of their chief complaints about football is, is just how, com- how frequently they go down injured and complain about being hurt when they're probably not. Um, uh, put, setting that aside, I do think it's a very, very interesting pattern of behaviour when footballers go down with injuries. And I think there are three degrees of pain that a footballer can be in. Uh, minor pain, at which, which case they kind of waggle their wrist a bit in expression of just how, how much they're hurting in that brief period of time. I think it's like impact injuries, perhaps. Uh, a moderate amount of pain is when they're on the floor and they're pounding the turf with their fist. Then mm-hmm. you know something really painful has happened, but their, their game probably isn't over yet. And then when you know where they're really, really in trouble, like a proper broken leg, is when they just, they're lying prone on the floor with their arms stuck straight into the air. Um, f- mannerisms of footballers in pain, discuss. I think there are a few more 
levels there. On, I think you can you can ratchet up a few more notches. I think like the really serious ones, it's a look down at the leg and like both hands immediately to the face, sometimes followed by tears, screams of anguish. Like the arm in the air is like, yeah, the hammy's gone. I know I'm injured, but I'm I'm not completely incapacitated. I th- I, also, I feel like there, there is a, across football in any country, there is only one way to beckon on a physio uh, during a kind of an emergency situation, which is putting both your hands in it in the air and kind of waggling them really desperately to to summon them on, as if it wasn't immediately obvious what was happening anyway. Um, it's always just a really weird thing to see when loads of players are turning around towards the bench and waggling their wrists, saying desperately. Please come on and tend to this player. Um, speaking of physios, um, it, it, the year is 2020 and I'm still seeing Premier League physios squirting water on an injury as if that's <laughs> going to make any difference. Um, we don't <laughs> see magic sponges anymore, which I think believe is a health and safety issue. But how can they get away with squirting water on an injury? They have qualifications. They have letters after their name and they're squirting a Lucozé bottle onto a muscular injury. What's going on? Yeah, it's a strange one. I mean, I'm surprised at the frequency with which footballers go down, get yeah. a minute's worth of treatment from the physio and are ready <laughs> to go again. I'm just unconvinced that anything can really happen in that minute period other than, you know, the pain wears off a bit. But uh, yeah, I-, I completely agree with you. I'm, I'm basically surprised that the physio is summoned so often. I mean, the, the physio yeah. is is basically there to, to fix serious injuries, um, but quite minor things. I'm not sure... Uh, there's that much need for medical treatment a lot of the time. But if you take, if you take say, time-wasting out of the equations, because I know players go down to waste time and that sort of stuff, and, and, and some players go down when they're genuinely injured or, or trying to get a player sent off or something like that. But the rest of the time, I feel like the, this, the sort of behaviour that irritates non-football fans when they're watching football, I feel like this is just learned behaviour. Footballers are doing this almost subconsciously. Um, for example when a player gets kind of sort of tapped in the face by another player, they kind of go down. I feel like this is an instinctive piece of behaviour. It isn't calculated. They just feel like they have to go down. It's, it's just kind of keeping up appearances aspect of this. I just think there's so much learned behaviour, Dave. Absolutely. And I think the, the, the classic test of this is when you see it um, transpiring on the parks with the kids <laughs> <laughs> and you get dads calling up radio stations, complaining, oh, they're all doing it now. My yeah. kids doing it. They're watching them off the telly. And they're doing it. They're diving. They're going down. They're rolling happen. around. Yeah, it, does, it surely must does happen because you're, you. It just becomes innate, kind of low key learned behaviour. And it's this isn't kind of a. I don't think there's a real cynical aspect to this. I just think they see footballers doing it. And think, mm. well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And, I, and yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I just think it's all for show, really. But um, it's a really odd I pattern think, of behaviour. I think you're right. Like definitely, people, kids, and that, and that, like, will will copy. And they think this is something that we need to do, but oh, the, the footballers are one hundred percent doing it, doing it cynically. Like, yeah, okay. never underestimate the ability of a professional footballer to try and do anything they can to gain an advantage in any, even the smallest way possible. They will go down. They will feign injury. You know, even the players that you never expect to do it, you've seen them do it, whether whether it's subconscious or not. When they're in that zone, if my face is touched, right, that's an opportunity to get that other player sent off. Yeah, I do. I, do, I also feel like um, this is something we've stopped blaming the foreigners for in this country because I remember it was it was a real kind of symptom of the foreign influx. And for years, <laughs> pundits were saying oh, this is creeping into our game. Ha- Coxie, has this stopped creeping into our game? Is it is it now officially fully crept into our game and it's just now a universal thing? I don't feel like it is an English, an anti-English thing anymore. Yeah, I agree. And I think we were always quite... Uh quick to forget when you know michael owen went to ground quite easily at a couple of world cups um and that kind of thing and owen weirdly is i don't think he's a particularly insightful pundit but when he talks about diving he's genuinely quite fascinating um <laughs> because he, he was quite good at it and he, you wouldn't call him a diver but he was very good at initiating contact and going yeah. to ground with yeah. a bit of you know a minimum of fuss almost he made it look natural and whenever he see, sees a player diving he really loves analysing it in depth, which I find quite uh, quite peculiar, but he is quite good at it. I feel like uh, this this particular subject has become a, a staple of, of top 10 lists um, for as long as I can remember, and that's freak injuries. And uh, if I say freak injuries to you, Michael Cox, who is the name that comes to mind? Unquestionably Dave Besant. Yes! <laughs> I've never been so sure of someone saying something in my entire life. Yeah. Um, uh, so 
let's for anyone who somehow does not know the story of Dave Besson, please tell us. Uh, well, I believe he dropped a bottle of salad cream. Uh, this is in the early 1990s, and salad cream does feel like quite an early 1990s. <laughs> it does. Um, and I gather the story is that he tried to kind of control the presumably glass bottle and ended in tears, yeah. which I know yeah. sounds ludicrous, but I think, and I can say I've definitely done this, anyone who's been in a kitchen and has dropped something has tried to control it with their foot. So I do have sympathy with him. I would back myself to to make the judgment as it was midair about whether it was worth sticking my foot out to control it. If, if we're talking like a, if we're talking like a soft object or or a piece of clothing, I would definitely stick out a foot. Maybe mm. even I would go as far as saying a deodorant can, but I would never <laughs> I would never try and and stop a full or even half full glass jar of something with my foot. But um, uh, obviously this story has done the rounds for decades, but um. But I actually got the, the truth from the man himself because he once appeared on a uh, obscure YouTube series called Footballers Wines. Yeah, I remember where... that. I remember <laughs> yeah. that. That was incredible. <laughs> so, so you have a sommelier who's sort, of, who's sort of pouring out these lovely wines. You've got a presenter and then they have this guest footballer every week. And, and this week, it, uh, and that particular week, it was Dave Besson. And of course, the subject turned to his salad cream incident. And uh, he explained in great detail what happened. He said um, he woke up in the morning to make a cup of tea and uh, reached into the cupboard and for some reason the tea bags were at the back of the cupboard and the salad cream was in front of it and as he reached the salad cream fell out and uh, and the and the rest is history um but what he goes on to say is that this incident led di- indirectly to his divorce because um he blamed it on his wife <laughs> it's a really sad story uh, unless he was joking about being divorced but he said um he said that uh yeah ir- irreconcilable differences after that and uh, and uh, that incident led her indirectly to his divorce so um it's a real sad story there was a real poignant point angle to this story i i can understand why you couldn't reconcile that because i would insist the salad cream would be in the fridge personally mm. yeah i think after opening you, sh- you should refrigerate absolutely um, yeah yeah what uh, what about ketchup uh, fle- uh, probably fridge, but I'd be a bit more flexible on that. Salad cream, mm. though, definitely in the fridge. <laughs> Put that in the prenup. We asked our listeners for some contributions to um, the subject of football anatomy. Uh, goal scorer challenge says, is there an actual precedent for a striker on a drought scoring a goal off his backside, which precipitates a run of goal scoring form? Uh, Jack replied straight after, saying Papis Cisse scored an injury time winner deflected of his arse for his first league goal of the season in late October 2012. He then went on to score 13 goals in all competitions, if that counts. <laughs> so I don't think it does. Uh, the goal drought was there. He did indeed score a goal of his arse, but I don't think going on to score 13 in all competitions counts as ending that goal drought. No, and I always have a slight problem with this where it's, they always say he needs it to go in off his arse, which is quite specific. And if that is what they're trying to do, I mean, you'd be better off trying to put it in with your feet, really, wouldn't you? Yeah, you <laughs> obviously would. Yeah, I, I, my take on this is that I'm surprised. There's one player in the world. See if you can guess this, uh, Adam. You might have seen my tweets. So you probably know what's coming. Um, right. That I'm surprised hasn't actually tried to master the art of scoring with his ass, and that player is obviously Cristiano Ronaldo. Mm. I think he'd be so obsessed with trying to do absolutely complete every aspect of football like he, like he part like didn't he do a pass off his back once like a I proper he, i try like he's he's practiced that in training and he's passed it with his back i'm sure that at some point he would have considered could i if the ball was at the right height and i turned around and sort of thrust my ass into the ball it could be a new type of goal well i hope he doesn't because uh that that would ruin one of the most venerable footballing cliches of 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 a kind of goal shy striker needing a goal to go off his ass, and obviously he's never experienced a goal drought so I feel like he would be commandeering it for his own purposes and I don't want that to happen so no is the answer to that I don't want it to happen <laughs> um Jono says um he always likes how any player under the under about five foot ten is immediately attributed with a low center of gravity um first of all are low centers of gravity actually a thing is, is there a physics based explanation for this and secondly can you think of any short players who have a high center of gravity coxie <laughs> uh, i don't know the answer to either of those questions i don't know whether it's i don't know whether it's scientific i suspect not um and any short players with a high i mean i've never heard I can of offer the phrase you, i can offer you pedro i feel like he's a player who you can easily knock over 
Um, just okay. <laughs> basically, the um, it, when you think of the child's toy, you know that kind of the bottom heavy toy that you couldn't push over. I can't remember what they're called. That's basically yeah. the ultimate example of a low center of gravity. So a player like sort of early Rooney would have had that. Zola would have been a good example. But I feel like there are sort of small players who who look like they don't really have that kind of solid base. Pedro would be one of them. I think maybe Michael Owen perhaps as well. He wasn't exactly a kind of turn on a sixpence kind of player. He was very kind of straight line. Um, Aaron Lennon, I feel like he might have a high centre of gravity. <laughs> uh, but I feel like it's important because, because we just attribute this. But there must be, there must be short players who fall over uh, more often than their height should dictate. The ultimate, and uh, we had about 408 people suggest this as, as a as content for today's episode, which was um, why are left feet always considered cultured and educated and wands, but right feet right feet are not as equally fetishized? What what is it about left feet that we're, that um, we're so obsessed with? Well, they're more rare. I mean, that's simply mm. that's it. Like, mm. I don't know what the what, I don't know what the actual stats are. I don't know if you've got any, but there are obviously far fewer people who are left-handed and left-footed than there are with with right you know, then there are right footed, but the, so I, I get the sort of cult, the cultured, cause it's like a slightly rarefied, sophisticated, not everyone's got it sort of thing. The wand though is, is, is interesting because you surely you can have a wand of a right foot. I don't think you can. Um, I would, I would allow, I would allow a right foot, um, to have a go at the ultimate footballing cliche task of opening a tin of beans. Um, but I don't think I would accept it as a wand. But you certainly don't get culture, cultured or educated right feet. But a, a theory I have is that um, a lot of pleasure and satisfaction from watching football is is not only how impressive something is, but you, as it happens, you imagine yourself doing it and think, wow, that must be really satisfying to do, like a really good volley. And I think if you're watching a left-footed player on average most people are not going to figure out are not going to be able to imagine how it how it would be to kick a ball with your left foot so therefore it's even more mystique added to it in that sense what do you think yeah i think it's spot on with that i mean it just looks like you say it just looks strange and i think it's something about left footers that if the ball comes to them you're more conscious of them getting it on their left foot than you would if it's a right footer i'm not sure quite why but i have previously looked at some statistics um of like the Premier League's top goal scorers and expected all the left-footed players to have a higher percentage of goals than right-footers with their strongest foot. And actually, I was completely wrong. Robbie Fowler, for example, I think of as a very one-footed player. But actually, I think he had the highest proportion of goals with his weaker foot. So it wasn't that he was one-footed, he was just left-footed. Interesting. Andreas Bremer, the German defender, he scored a penalty in the 1986 World Cup quarterfinal with his left foot. And then the winning penalty in the 1990 World Cup final with his right foot. That's that's elite level two-footedness, isn't it? I mean, can you think of any others? Yeah, there's two players in the history of the Premier League who've scored a penalty with both their left foot and their right foot, Adam. Do you want to guess? Wow. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, you will never get these answers. I mean... I've been asked this question before, but I can't remember the answers at all. Uh, no, I'm not going to get them. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't particularly think of either of them as two-footed but apparently they were one was Obafemi Martins formerly of Newcastle yeah. oh wow yeah. and the other was uh can we call him a journeyman maybe uh Bobby Zamora also did oh yeah oh right yeah yeah he's definitely a journeyman um but again I thought I would have thought of them both as as predominantly left-footed that's really yeah. strange. The mind that plays tricks. Me. Yeah. I remember Morton Gemps Pedersen's taking corners with either foot at one point I think there was a story from his childhood that he scored in the same game with a corner from either foot. Well, Morton wow. Gamus Pedersen was um, semi-famously right-footed when he was growing up. And right. his dad, uh, he was obviously a very good player at youth level. And his dad insisted he could only use his weaker foot in some games. And he trained <laughs> his, his weaker foot so much he actually became left-footed. And the same right. story, amazingly, applies to uh, Gail Clichy, formerly of Arsenal mm. and Manchester City. Um, and that kind of makes sense because... I'd say Gail Clichy was a rare, very good left back who you wouldn't say had a good left foot. He was quite... Yeah, yeah you absolutely. You do think of him really as swinging in crosses, do you? We asked our listeners to suggest some players who... who the most one-footed players they've ever seen. Uh, Chris Turner goes for the obvious one. Wayne Bridge is the most one-footed player of all time. Now, I remember Wayne Bridge um, going 
so far out of his way to use his right foot um, that he would run round the ball and kick it with his left to avoid using his right. It, it, that was how one-footed he was. It was incredible. Um, Solius suggests Antonio Valencia, who was incredibly one-footed. Um, Sam also suggests Ricardo Quaresma. Um, Cox, you know a fair bit about Quaresma. Yeah, I mean, he was, I'd say, quite a unique player over the last 10, 20 years in... in uh... European football where he preferred using the outside of his right foot to using the inside of his right foot before you even consider him using his weaker foot. So yeah, he was um yeah, quite unique in the in the sense that he was right footed but was more of a goal scoring threat from the right and more of a crossing threat from the left. Um yeah, I absolutely loved watching him. And also one of those players where uh, he'd, he'd be a good entry for a list of players you forgot played in the Premier League because he had that yes. very short half-season spell with Chelsea where I don't think... That was really much. weird. And and on his debut, he did it what everyone expected of him, which was the... I believe it's called the Trivella, wasn't it? And yeah. uh, he did it within about two minutes of, of, of being on the pitch and everyone just thought, what is this? And and he was just <laughs> a really strange curiosity and then just and just left very quietly. Well, I remember um, he, went to Inter, he went to Inter Milan later uh, where he linked up with Jose Mourinho... And there was uh, <laughs> about two months into his uh, spell that he wasn't playing much. And um, Mourinho was asked in a press conference why this was. And he just said something along the lines of he needs to learn more about tactical discipline. At the moment, he likes kicking the ball with the outside of his foot. And that was it. He just moved on. But Mourinho was absolutely <laughs> not having. That's literally this... all there is to know about him. It's, it's, exactly. that's it. That is Quaresma, the most one dimensional player, but in, in such a lovely way. But it was um, the phrase it was the phrase at the moment, which I really mm. think uh, <laughs> implied what Mourinho's intentions were for his uh, future development. Poor old Quaresma. Some strange, kind of curious examples of, of players on pitch body language. Uh, I always enjoy, um, during the early stages of the game, if, if an overhit crosshill pass sails over a winger's head, they will always kind of respond quite politely with a little thumb and a kind of applaud for the intent. Other really curious um, footballing mannerisms. Uh, uh, one I can only kind of describe as the giant virtual ball. This is the, the, the signal that a player makes when they think they've won a ball in a tackle. And my theory is that the bigger the ball they make the more desperate that their appeal is and the less likely it is that they got the ball. Other things that footballers do with their hands. How about imaginary cards? Yeah, well, imaginary cards is an interesting one because I think that sometimes gets conflated with just the kind of Italian gesture that, you know, is used to kind of express annoyance or frustration about something. There's kind of a grey area where I'm not sure whether some players are asking for a yellow or whether they are just doing that. I don't know what you call the gesture. I'm sure there is a word for it. But yeah, I think some sometimes people get that wrong. The imaginary card does, in certain corners of the Twitter sphere, inspire like absolute rage from I think from sort of proper proper football men like yeah, they, they 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 consider this to be like uh, an almighty sin we can't possibly have again usually a foreigner coming over here <laughs> and waving an imaginary card in our face when I know. what's the difference between shouting at the referee just so the fact that be a you, booking ref yeah yeah exactly there's literally no difference but but if you produce the imaginary card that's it you should be off well, I mean, my my bugbear with this isn't isn't is not a moral thing. I, I I genuinely don't care about imaginary cards, and I think getting angry about an imaginary card is in itself utterly absurd. But my issue is is the technique that players use when waggling their cards because it is it's a proper waggle, like they waggle it, and referees never do that. So if no, you're gonna if you want to persuade true. a referee to to issue a card, I think you should do it properly, like take it out your pocket and <laughs> like present it to the referee. Do it properly because you're not going to persuade a referee otherwise. Um, yeah, top, we, we did top, top pocket. Top pocket if you want a booking and yeah. back pocket if you want a red. <laughs> exactly. Oh God. You imagine a player like really fiddling with the red card in the back, like for a double <laughs> yellow. Do it properly. David J. Bowman, uh, a player sticking their hands up in the air before they take a corner. I have no idea what it means. Perhaps that's the point, though. You're not supposed to know. But I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that in I'm in about 60 percent of cases, I think they're just doing it for show. I don't think it actually means anything. That's my I theory. agree. I, Adam, I agree with you completely. I actually went this was about three or four years ago I was doing an article and I'm sorry to say I went through all of, I think, Stokes Corners <laughs> looking at the hand signals and trying to work out if there was any indication oh, of consistency wow. between games. Uh, of course, the problem then is that it would be a, a, the done thing, the clever thing to change 
what signal you're doing between games. But I agree with you. I think it's just because it looks good. I, I'm fairly sure when I was in the playground, I would often just raise Yeah, totally. Oh, um, I, I think I've done it sarcastically at Sunday late before taking corners. <laughs> you just feel like you have to do it because yeah. I, I just, I just, yeah, it's part of it's part of the act of being a footballer. Um, John Kehoe, this is a lovely one. Uh, when a goalkeeper saves a penalty and it goes out for a corner and then rather than accepting the congratulatory hugs from his defenders, he always instead sternly lambasts them with furious instructions to defend the imminent corner that again i feel like that's ingrained in a in a goalkeeper's um uh, mannerisms that you, you you absolutely cannot celebrate the saving of a penalty you have to look really stern after it yeah you do you definitely do but also the the defenders or the players coming to congratulate they're also they are quite really aggressive aren't they it'll be like a they'll they'll really go and slap him on their back really forcefully what I'd love to see is a, is a goal scored from a corner after a penalty's been saved because the defenders were too busy celebrating with the goalkeeper. I'd really like to see that happen because it would be one for the goalkeeper's union, wouldn't it? Ross Tyson, he says, I've, no- I've noticed fewer players are blowing their nose with their thumb pr- pressed against their other nostril. It does feel like a quite a 90s thing. It's a bit like those nose strips. You just don't see players spitting out of their nose anymore. Yeah, we can only be thankful for that in the coronavirus <laughs> era, I suppose. Yeah. I think there was an old wives' tale that says if you do that, and you block one half of your nose, it will blow. It will blow all the um, fragments into your brain. So uh, hopefully that's why footballers have stopped doing it. <laughs> anyway, uh, Adam Nathan says the fourth official showing the um, board to both sides of the stadium, even though it's displayed on both sides of the board. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. And he goes on to say, plus he was, he's always interested to know whether they go for the body pivot method or the cross arm. Yeah, I guess it's something they must teach at referee school is how to show the board. I hope well, so. Well, yeah, well, definitely. And there's also a slight thing they do where they kind of fan it as well because you know from some angles you can't <laughs> quite you get the glare. So it's quite a <laughs> complex operation. I know um, one of our colleagues at the Athletic, Stuart James, was uh, doing a refereeing course and was writing about mm. this. And um, I think I, I hope I'm not dobbing him in by saying I think he attempted to to claim as an expense the cost of a fourth official's board. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, extra- it was extraordinarily expensive. <laughs> it was like, I think it was 600 quid. 600 pounds. All it is, is, it's just digital numbers. I can't, wow. I mean, that's that's cheaper. Uh, sorry, that's more expensive than like an iPad. And an iPad can do a million <laughs> more things than just displaying numbers. I'd want it to be like voice activated <laughs> for that money. I'd want to be able to say a player's name in and it would instantly come up with his number. Yeah. Uh, uh, what a racket that is, making fourth officials um, substitution boards. Um, I, Adam, yeah. I tell you, as a, um, as a committed non-league fan, I uh, go to Kingstonian a lot. The first time that an away side arrived with an electronic board rather than just the kind of old-fashioned numbers on, you know... God like a ring binder. Yeah, like exactly. The, <laughs> yeah. The, the kind of ooze from the crowd, the sarcastic jeers, <laughs> was absolutely magnificent. It was the most kind of like fancy thing anyone had seen. It was like, oh, you really reckon yourself, do you? It was great. Any more examples of curious footballing body language? Yeah, one that I haven't seen for quite a while, but I feel like it was quite a big thing back in the 90s, and it goes back to the diving debate, was if a defender had fouled a player, they'd kind of do this, he's dive gesture. There wasn't really like a dive as in a swimming pool dive. I'd say it almost was more like the motion of, say, a car going over a stunt ramp or something like I that. I was thinking Did- of it, or doing the impression of a squirrel. Yeah, I can I can see that. But I remember, I remember Tony Adams was top class at it during Arsenal's European runs in the mid-90s. <laughs> Every time he fouled someone, always did the he's dive gesture. But he would he would follow that up by sort of um, looming over the prone player and getting really close to him and reminding of him the fact that he thinks he's died. I think that's really important. Um, well, that, that getting... that's actually that's actually another one. What he what he would have done, I imagine, on on occasion, is the sort of very passive aggressive. I'll go to shake your hand and then pull you up, even if you don't want to be pulled up. You're coming up. Yes. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Players refusing to be lifted off the turf and making themselves as heavy as possible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but on, the, on the flip side, you get um, it, when, when a player goes down with cramp, it's always an opposition player who goes and helps them, which I think is nice. Uh, or it might just be they want them to hurry up. So there's, there is still a little bit of heart left in football. Um, but where there is no heart left is the weekly cliche quiz. Michael Cox is making his debut here. Um, would you like to know the format? It's uh, it, it's three it's three questions relating to football cliches, 
and winner takes all. I've got a league table and everything. Yeah, sure. Um, that, there was controversy last week when Dave questioned one of the questions and he turned out that his his protest was correct. So we had to do the whole thing all over again. So um, we're not going to make the same mistake this week. Uh, here are your three questions. Um, so first answer wins. Let's go. What is the main criteria for an innocuous injury? Oh, uh, when they're not close to an opponent. I, I need more specific than that. Yeah. <laughs> I will accept your answer. It's no one being within yards of them. <laughs> okay, sorry, okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I'll I, let you have that. So that's 1-0 to Coxie. Sorry, Dave. Um, question two. A forceful shot from the edge of the area is parried by the goalkeeper. What has it done to the goalkeeper? It's oh. He's made, made him oh. work. No. What's it done to him? What, what sensation is he feeling? Uh, oh, um, uh, well, the goalkeeper. Uh, his palms yes. have been his palms have been stung. Uh, yes, he's done uh, it. Thank you. Oh, it was it was touch and go there. I I was beginning to think that cliche, football cliches were not an actual thing, and <laughs> luckily someone has stepped in with the answer there. Yes, it's two nil to Coxie. Yes, it was indeed the stinging of his palms. Well, we might as well go through the formality of question three um, because I have written it, and uh, it would be a shame not to. Um, maybe you can scrape back some pride here, Dave. Um, what is, in, in a context of a single player's career, what is the collective noun for injuries? Uh, I think no. A, no, I, I think... Injury I think, prone? Is it, is it a spate? No, you're That's, wrong. That, ref, that refers to one team... Yes. At a particular moment, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, I'm afraid you're wrong. And I don't think Dave's getting there. So I'm afraid the answer is a catalogue of injuries. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, fair play. So uh, Coxie wins that 2-0. Uh, welcome, uh, welcome to the league table. Thank you. And uh, Dave, sorry about that. Must try harder. You're, you've drawn a blank for the second time in three weeks. Yeah. It's not my strong Hope, point. Hopefully, one will go, go in off your backside at some point. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not. You know, this. I'm not a. I'm not a cup team. I do my. <laughs> I, do, I, I do my talking in the league. Right. You're, okay. Nice. Well, you can focus on the league from now on. Well, thank you both for joining me. I hope you're walking off the pitch, clapping to nobody in particular with your hands above your head for absolutely no reason whatsoever. And uh, we'll see everyone next week. All our podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to subscribers. You can sign up and get a 40% discount now by going to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod.